So my wife has an MBA. She was a finance person for many, many years and ran a finance department of a nonprofit. And somewhere in her mid-40s, she came home on a random Tuesday and just said, this isn't fun anymore. I want to be a nurse. And I want to go back to school and get a bachelor's in nursing. And I was like, this is like your third degree or your fourth degree. And she's like, yeah, but, but this is no fun. Let's figure out a way that we're going to make this happen. So I was like, all right, let's figure it out. Every night for like the next two or three years, she was on the floor in the, in the living room with like all the nursing books spread out. And at the time, I'm, you know, we're thinking to ourselves, like we are middle-aged people and you are taking all these qualifications you had as a business person and now you're quote unquote throwing them away. But, but now, you know, 10 years later, she is a charge nurse and like runs the floor and she's got like 10 years experience. So that seems like an eternity. That's like a career. She has a nursing career. So then it makes me wonder, are we going to do this again? Is there another reboot coming? What happens when I reboot, right? Like I've got the date set. I'm ready to go. I want to become a teacher. How many more reboots do I have in me? So are you happy doing what you do, right? Has this professional life run its course and it's time to move? That's the topic of this week's show, Reboot. When is it time to hit the reset button and find something different? I'm going to talk to Lawrence Lockhart. He's a newly minted software developer, a community organizer who has changed his life after decades managing restaurants. Rob talks to his mom, who retired from teaching high school in the late 1980s, only to begin part four of her life at age 63. Brand new career as a technology consultant, helping the L.A. County School District put computers in the classroom. It is never too late to find a different path. This is Lawrence. I met Lawrence on TikTok. We are old men on TikTok together. And I bumped into him and I was like, this dude is dropping knowledge. He uses TikTok to lift people up. He is sharing his message, sharing his story, sharing his journey on TikTok. Where has this guy been for the last 20 years? Uh, before I was a programmer, I was a restaurant manager, hospitality manager, as we like to call it, make it sound a little fancy. He did that for a whopping 17 years. And after you do something for at least 10 years, you convince yourself you love it, even if you don't, you just keep kicking on. But yeah, it's one of those interesting career fields that you just, you can choose it, but you can also fall into it. And I was the fall into it category. Meaning when you don't have marketable skills for the marketplace, there's typically about two or three places where you can just end up a hospitality, B retail or C military. Now those are all fine fields. Those are all completely reputable, awesome disciplines to get into if you choose them. But my case was not by choice. It was flunked out of college because I didn't do my homework, basically issues with attention deficit and who knows what else. And so you just have to figure out a way to live and to eat, pay for bills. And so you do hospitality. Well, I've, I've talked about this with my kids before, where there's a, sometimes when you meet somebody doing hospitality, a waiter, a bartender, a front desk person, or maybe someone who's a greeter, there's millions of those people who come in and out of your lives and you don't really think about them. They're pleasant. Sure. But then every once in a while, there'll be someone who will scoop my meat at Chipotle, but they'll look me straight in the eye and 
I'll, and sometimes I'll bring my big dad energy that I have and I'll be like, what do you, what's next for you? And inevitably I'm right. And they'll say, oh, I'm in a musical theater thing, or I'm an artist, or I'm a singer, or I'm doing my doctorate in something. And I'm just at Chipotle temporarily. But you were, did you, first, did you ever meet people like that? I was born to one. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I generated the late bloomer gene for my dad. He was in the military for a long time and then worked in warehouses, just driving forklifts. But literally, in my opinion, a mathematical genius in just life, circumstances, opportunities, the way things go. He ended up working, like I said, in the Worked with military for a long time, worked on airplane engines. I think he originally joined just for the dentistry, the free dentistry. He get his teeth fixed finally because money at home wasn't there and insurance wasn't there. So join the military, get your teeth fixed. Did his time. He was honorably discharged and then worked at a warehouse for a long time. But again, just a brilliant guy. And so later in life, he ended up enrolling in a mechanical engineering program with San Francisco State and became eventually the first licensed professional black engineer in the state of Mississippi working for MDOT, our Department of Transportation. And the thing is, that's always who he was. He just wasn't in the right place doing the right things. And I learned to respect that there's a lot of people like that. I was one, he was one, and there's tons of others. So yes, I can meet a person in a restaurant, driving a garbage truck anywhere. You never know what people are capable of. And what I try to do in some of my mentoring is help them understand they may not even be aware of what they're capable of, to give themselves a chance. I think my first job in a restaurant was just pulling the ice cream in a little Dairy Queen in McGee, Mississippi. I was just making the ice cream cones. Next, I'm the assistant night manager with benefits. I'm like, whoa, how did that happen? And then I'm at Wendy's as an assistant manager at the next restaurant. And so it just kept going from there. And when you find some sort of success, hey, that's addictive. That feels good. Hey, college didn't work out. Any of the five different universities I tried and flunked out of. And here's something that's working and I'm getting more money, not a ton of money, mind you, but more money progressively and getting more positions, more experience, more power, so to speak. So I rolled that way for a while. But was that who Lawrence really is and where he really should be? Probably not. In high school, I was the math nerd. I was the geek, the band geek. And, and the overachiever, the vice president of the beta club, the student council, and all those things. And then again, like I said, went off to school and just so much for that. <laughs> Why is that? My dad was similar. My dad tried to go to college oh, and flunked gosh. out. Just, it's like what he was a BMOC, they would say, big man on campus yes. in, uh, in high school. And yes. then college, he was like, nope, not good at this. So many factors. I don't know how much time we have. Definitely one of them is being the big fish in a small pond to being a nearly non-existent fish in a humongous ocean. That was one, just didn't know how to deal with that mentally at all. Um, two, which didn't help me at all. I never studied in high school, ever, I never studied. I listened, I did my homework in class typically, I might review it at home and that was enough. That was all I needed. And I entered an institution where if you're not studying on the very first day of class, you're done, you're done. I had no study habits. I, I just didn't have those tools. And so what was a dream, which was going to MIT as a freshman in 1989, turned into a nightmare. And when I got that letter of expulsion that basically said, pack your bags and hit it, kid, come winter of 1990. Hold up. You were expelled. They were like, no, thank you. 
And the thing is, so the first semester was horrible. And I remember failing Cal 1, which is uh, 1801. Everything's a number there. MIT has a thing every January called IAP. It's like individual activity period where you can do just fun things or take a class. So I took a class, but the only one I could get into was Cal 2. That doesn't make sense. Cal 1 is a prereq for Cal 2. Somehow I got in, passed it with flying colors. So I know it wasn't intellect. It was just all the other things, lots of weird stuff going on in my head with dopamine and motivation and intimidation and just lots of other stuff. And the fact that I went from Little City, Mendenhall, Mississippi to Cambridge, Mass, which is right across the river from Boston, Mass, home of 50 universities. That was a lot for a 16, just turned 17 year old kid. That was a lot. How many people have you met who tell you that they're like a vegan CrossFitter who went to Cornell within the first 10 seconds of them meeting you? I've known this guy for a year or two, and he's never once said he went to MIT. I mean, how do you go to MIT when you're that young? How do I don't you know. Do you go there as a chess expert or something. I don't know. You go there with a 2000 chess rating. I think he was being humble, but also it's his journey. It's simply a thing that happened. He, he also didn't mention that he must have skipped a grade at some point. So he's effectively a high school junior, and I've got one who can barely flush a toilet. I know it's not the same thing, but I have a vivid memory of trying out for the baseball team in my high school. And I wanted on so badly. I would throw a ball against a wall every day after school. I wanted to be a pitcher, you know, and I, I could throw a ball really fast, but I didn't make the team. And I was utterly, utterly devastated. And I had this drama in my mind. I had this whole thing. I couldn't tell my brother. I couldn't tell my mom. I couldn't tell my dad. It just felt like intense failure. I'm bringing this up to say that was probably one of the most devastating things of my young life, which of course, in retrospect, is not much. But thinking about going to MIT at that age and then having to leave, whoo, how do you how do you tell your family that? I don't know, man. But at the same time, uh, my dad always said the best revenge is living well. So we don't have to say fail, but we can definitely say that the plan did not go as expected. It did not at all. And so what I did, which was probably the absolute wrong thing, was just keep myself busy. Left that school, immediately enrolled in another school and stayed there, I think. That was around Desert Storm, the first Desert Storm, 91-ish. Immediately enrolled because my dad was like, they're going to draft you, you better get back in school. So I enrolled somewhere, stayed there for a couple of semesters, went to a community college for a couple of semesters. And then I enrolled in Mississippi State for the first time. And couple of semesters went fine. A couple went horribly, absolutely horribly. Left there, enrolled in yet another university. So the answer to your question is I just really didn't process it. I couldn't process it. Everything about me that I felt was true about me was suddenly not true, which begs the question. So who the heck am I? What am I made of? What are my capabilities? What are my talents? And I went through that for literally five different universities until at the end, my dad said, Hey, don't know what's going on in your head, but you have to start making money. So you leave MIT, you, you do another college, but when do you, how do you end up in food service? Oh, I was after the fourth failed experience in college. So yeah, it just wasn't working. It wasn't clicking. And I just kept trying and trying without doing anything different, without going to any kind of therapy, without investigating anything about my 
anything. Like I was just enrolling in colleges and just figuring out where I can go next, thinking the next one will be it. The next one will be it. The next one will be it. And of course it was never it because I wasn't actually doing anything different. Just enrolling in a different college. And uh, yeah, after, like I said, the fifth one, which was the university of Southern Mississippi, I was going to be a, I think I changed my major from mechanical engineering to applied math for some reason. That was weird. And that didn't work. And so my dad was like, Hey, you're 20, whatever years old. I don't know what's going on in your brain, but you're at the age where you have to mature as an adult. You have to mature as an adult. And so whether you have a degree or not, you're going to do something different. And there was a little restaurant down the road, McGee, Mississippi called Dairy Queen. Like I said, it was an ice cream place. And so started working there, increased my hours. And like I said, convinced myself I liked it. Did you lose time? Did you ever like notice a year go by or five years go by? Did, did that happen? Yeah, that, I, I've lost time sometimes, not in a like drunken stupor kind of way, but just in a like I was on cruise control. So then I would lose a year. I wouldn't say I lost a year as it was happening, but in retrospect, there's moments of time. It's a, it's a funny thing. That's a really interesting question because in order to do better now, I have to be honest about every single period that passed. Not just the college period, but the restaurant period. And there was a break in there. Those five years I went into supply chain until that job just closed down and they laid off a ton of people. But being honest about every single period is super important in order to do better now. And so sometimes look at it and there's these down feelings like, wow, what a screw up. Like what was wrong with you? Just a lot of negative emotions around different chunks of time. And then coming back and saying, hey, you're the same person but you were using or not using different tools at your disposal. Sometimes you didn't even know were available to you. Things as simple as this whiteboard, which right now I know you can't see it, but it's organized by today, this week in long-term. And every day I only have my musts. I have a thousand things in my head at all times, but my musts are only things that go on today. And before the day is over, all those boxes will be checked. I get a good feeling. Now the ones that are like noteworthy, I put them on my brag book for work. The ones that aren't, it doesn't matter. I, I've listened through twice now. And the second time when I was doing the edits, he talked about a brag book and I, I didn't understand what the hell he was talking about. Yeah. It's like the opposite of a vision. People have vision boards, right? Make a collage and you put it on the wall and you look at it every day and then you manifest the thing. But a brag book is like your parents putting a newspaper clipping of all the newspaper articles about you in a book. I have a folder in Outlook. I'll just forward it to my boss and I'll say, for the HR files. And that's my way of saying, hey, you know, Rob Connery emailed me and said I was cool. Put this in the <laughs> HR files. You can then reference it when you look back and you're interviewing for a job or trying to negotiate for a raise. And by the way, you know, I was thinking about this too. It's, I think it's important if it's, if it's just you, right? If it's just for you, it's not a flex. It's not bragging. It's you remembering how good you are. And that's a really simple tool and it's analog. I'm not using the most complicated to do electronic system. It's completely analog. I could have done this in 89, never even considered this kind of thing. So to answer your question, no chunks of time are missing, but how I define them changes as I grow more and more mature where I can accept each thing happened for whatever reason it happened. And here's are some of the reasons I can identify. And here are some ways I can make sure I don't go back into any of those unproductive states. When you rebooted, when you said, I'm gonna be a programmer, was that a gradual thing or was it a random Tuesday? Like, I'm just imagining, like, in, my, in, the, in the movie of your life, like, you're polishing the top of the bar and then you throw the rag down and you walk out yeah. and then buy a PC or something. I'm just, 
it probably wasn't that dramatic, but that I'm would curious. have been much from a much more romantic way, but it was more like close, but not quite that. So I was the general manager of the local popular burger joint in Oxford, Mississippi, which is where University of Mississippi is, it's a college town. And the general manager is the one that always closes the restaurant on for Friday and Saturday nights. Get there around 4 p.m., get off around 4, 5, 6, or 7 a.m., just depending on how the night went. So it's basically a graveyard shift. And one particularly rough night, I get off in the morning, it's 7-ish a.m., I get home, I'm thinking, if I go to sleep, I'll miss church. Church is important to me. If I don't go to sleep, I'm going to be cranky. I'm going to be cranky through church. Which is better? Neither one is better. My eyes are red. My body's physically tired. I need to jump in the shower because I'm wet and greasy and smell like old fish grease. I'm like, these are just, neither one of these are healthy options. I'm looking at my wife and she's wanted to engage with me. I have zero energy. I have zero interest in talking to the woman I love. I tell her, I got to get out of here. I'm going to die first. I won't be here to take care of you, kids. I won't be, I won't be here. I've got to just, I didn't know what exactly that was going to be, but it couldn't be this anymore. No matter how much I liked it, income was actually okay. We lived a moderately decent Southern American middle-class lifestyle. We had a nice house, took vacations, but there was just nothing left of me for what I love, which is my family. So something had to change. It wasn't a maybe, a must. It was a had to change where I wouldn't be here any longer. Now, the interesting backdrop is about a year and a half prior, I had taken some career assessments with a career counseling company. I think it's called Lee Hecht Harrison. Just, my God, every test but the Rose Art, just every imaginable test under the sun. And one of the things that came out of it were career opportunities. Hey, here's some things you may still do well in if you want to consider a change. And one of them was as a programmer. One of them was actually actuarial science. But then there was database analyst, programmer, web designer, like a bunch of things in the programming field, which shocked the heck out of me. Bear in mind, I haven't taken a technical class, a math class, nothing technical in decades. But based on its assessment, because it had little math quizzes and little brain teasers and things, I still had the stuff to potentially do well. And that began my journey into, I think it was free code camp first and then a few other courses just to see what might this be like. You can hear it in his voice. You can hear that resolve. You know that I need to do this now. This isn't some good idea, right? This isn't some, hey, wouldn't it be fun if I was a computer programmer? It was no, this is what I need to do now for me, which is just... I know that feeling. I've had it before. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a feeling when you're down and you start to feel your back kind of tense up as you stand up and you can feel him standing up in that moment and going, all right, now I know which direction to run in. Let me get up and I'm going to run in that direction. And then he put together a plan and he executed on that plan. It reminds me of, I've been through a few startups, a couple of my own, a couple with a friend a long time ago. And that feeling of walking through the door, like, okay, the rest of my life is out of my head and behind me. I am sitting down and I'm going to perform today and do X, Y, and Z. And I have to say, it is a bit of a drug. You get kind of addicted to that charge, that clarity of intent and purpose. I like that clarity of intent. Like once you know what to do, then it's like there's effectiveness and there's efficiency. And I've talked about this before, right? Effectiveness is picking a direction and efficiency is then running 
in that direction. But without direction, you can only just be running, right? Yep. And I feel like he found his direction. He was already efficient, but then he's like, wait a second, I need to run over there. All right, let's orient everything. Let's all point in that direction. I'll talk to my wife, talk to my family, and then run. But there's a difference between a good idea and something I must do to continue to live, to survive, to provide. That was an extra thrust. And just, ha just knowing I didn't want to miss so many key dates in my kids' lives. Again, three kids and just missed so much. Talk about missed time, missing so much of their lives because I'm at work. Just the nature of work. It's a 60-hour week this week. It's an 80-hour week this week. That'll motivate you. That'll drive you to figure things out, to have the right amount of dopamine come through and the serotonin come through so that you can stay up all night and get through. Here's how you do a for loop and here's how you do a while loop in JavaScript versus Python or whatever else the case may be. Because it's a have to. There's, there's like a switch. And I think in my youth, that switch never clicked off. It was just fun. It was just neat. It was a cool idea, my dream. But there wasn't much must about it that ever clicked. And to get anything done in life that's challenging, you have to switch that must switch. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but I feel like it's funny. I've said before that if I retire, I would go back to school because I really have great feelings about Portland Community College. Mm. And now I'm like, man, at this age, with what I know, I could crush college. <laughs> so I want to go back to PCC and learn Spanish and actually try. Yes. I've proven to myself, I've, I haven't bought that, but I've definitely proven to myself I can learn anything that I want to learn on demand. There's nothing like literally nothing on the planet that if I want to, if the motivation is there that I can't learn. How long did it take to get that first job as an engineer? Let's see, started, oh gosh, let me not misquote years. It was about two and a quarter to two and a half years. Because again, I didn't go from, I want to be a programmer to having all the stuff figured out. The communities that we enjoy now, whether it's Twitter spaces, the Slack groups, meetup groups like I run and many others, most of that didn't exist when I started just around almost six years ago with the decision, hey, I want to be a programmer. So I was just floating out there, Scott, just floating, just trying a course, trying another course, not really sure, Googling a lot of stuff, YouTubing people, didn't really know who was the good one versus the questionable ones. And so it was a long winding path, but I stuck with it because I knew I had to change. Um, but it was about two and a half to two and a quarter years uh, before I got that very first job. And even with that, it was community that made the difference for me, by the way, not just studying more stuff or making more projects. It was actually joining a local meetup community here in Memphis and just meeting decent folks who said, hey, I'll look at your portfolio or, hey, I'll look at your resume or here's an example of a good front end project that might impress an employer, that kind of thing. That made all the difference in my learning and growth. It ended up being the place that I got my first job through the Slack community. I think, though, that when I think of you and the time that we've spent together in the past, I think of you as being a community person. You seem to find community very intuitive. Did you find community intuitive when you got into this space? Not at all. I was so introverted and just shy and just slinked to the back. But people showed me it can be safe. And the names are Joe Ferguson, who is a PHP god here in the city of Memphis. A guy named James Q. Quick, who's a JavaScript god here in the city of Memphis. And a guy named Ted Patterson, who I think moved out east. I forget where he lives now. Uh, those three names and a few others made all the difference in my life, showing this can be a safe space. I can open my mouth 
that it's cool to help people and not want anything in return. And it's a good feeling. And so the more they poured into me, I was motivated to pour into others. Once I get my job, I'm going to tell everybody I know, this is the place to come. Here's how you do it. Here's what to avoid. I want to pour back. I want to give back because so many people gave to me that didn't have to. They weren't paid for it. There was no cameras on. There was just, hey, who's this guy? My name is Lawrence. I'm trying to learn how to code. Hey, cool. Let me show you something. So when I mentor people who are in their 20s and early in career, as opposed to someone who's in their 50s and early in career, I say, yeah, go outside. And by that, I mean meetups, virtual meetups, Slacks, Discord, get involved. Humans can help you. Too many people right now feel isolated, feel alone. The mm -hmm. pandemic changed it. Social media sucks. And people turn inward and they think that they can solve this through sheer Herculean effort. And then they go to social media trying to talk to people who will then lift them up. And in fact, they meet a bunch of hustlers. And the hustlers and the hustle culture people say, the reason you're not succeeding is because you don't want it enough. It's because mm. you didn't learn Chinese during the pandemic. What were you doing with all that wasted time? You yeah. know, just trying to survive. And then you, you, know, you need to pull within because it's just, it's 100% self-discipline. But what I think Lawrence recognizes is that it's half self-discipline and half community. Yep. So he goes out there and he starts to spread the word. And one thing I really love about this too is his focus on giving back. I had a great conversation that turned into a blog post and actually became part of a book I was writing. The key to me is to start this positive upward cycle where you learn something, feel what it feels like to know a thing. You don't have to be an expert. And then you go out and share it. You share what you've learned because that starts as positive reinforcement. And then that's the giving back that Lawrence is talking about. And then when that positive reinforcement starts, it is impossible to stop. You don't have to be an expert. I've Personally, for me, the idea of a midlife reboot always seemed intuitive. My wife did it after 15 years of working in finance. My mom has done it. It just seems like no one ever told me you had to pick one job. <laughs> when you were a early in career person, but also I assume you're in your 30s or 40s when you were doing this, you're like, everyone's expecting an early in career programmer to be in their twenties. Did you have any challenges with that? Not really, because again, so I did have both of my parents who made big changes later in life. My dad, I think thirties, yeah, at least thirties, if not early forties, when he got his bachelor's degree well, from San Francisco state in mechanical engineering, my mom got her bachelor's in education in her fifties. And then worked a whopping, I think, less than a decade as a teacher and then retired. And so I had those examples right in front of me. So it wasn't foreign at all. It just wasn't originally the way I thought things were going to go for me. And I take pride in being the old guy in certain spaces. I always tell the young ones, hey, I'll run circles around you. Let's go physically fit. I'm fun. I'm active now. I can get out of my shell and decent programmer, not the best decent programmer. And I've learned to leverage things to my benefit. I wear that with pride. That's no issue. I mean, no issue whatsoever in terms of ageism or anything like that, even yeah. in terms. Like my niece is 28. She literally asked me at dinner yesterday if she should get into like power platform. Is it too late? Too late. <laughs> You're 28. Wow, it's a lot what a of perfect life. time. What a perfect time to do it. Like it could not be a better time. And in fact, so we're talking about my reboot, the big reboot, but then even within my tech career, there's been like a soft reboot where I found myself investing in community, investing in others, working. I was working at FedEx after my first job at Fred's and maybe two or three years in, I'm realizing 
I can probably take this to another level if I get a little more focused about how I'm managing myself in community and how I'm producing content and things of that nature. And so that was about a year and a half journey, a soft reboot, being really intentional about, hey, let me start recording some of these talks. Let me record some of these conferences. Let me make a, a log of this because I think I can parlay it into another thing, which is where I am now, having started at Vodden as a developer advocate just this summer. Really excited about that, but I like to emphasize people like it wasn't accidental. Like I didn't just slide into it. This was a thought process. Like, and then in my case, I made the specific decisions that I worked in Java development for the last four and a half years. I'll do this in a Java environment, which is what Vodden is. I want to give my thanks to Lawrence Lockhart for talking to me today. And if you want to find out more about what he's up to, take a look at tiktok.com slash at Lawrence D. Lockhart. I never thought I would interview my mom for this podcast. <laughs> Nothing against mom, of course. It just seems excessive, I guess. Last month, I was laughing with a friend about how I grew up with an Apple-obsessed mom who taught me what baud rate was and showed me the internet for the very first time. She walked me through setting up Netscape in the early 90s and explained the difference between that and America Online. It's weird how you can know your parents for so long and never really see them. I mean, my family would ask her for printer advice when we were home for the holidays. She was the one who introduced me to computers when I was in high school, and ironically, I hated them right from the start. I didn't want to spend my days in front of a screen like that. I wanted to be outside in the sun and surf, getting tan, playing volleyball, you know, being a teenager. Every year, my mom would donate her old machine to a school, some charity or sometimes me, and then we'd get the new shiny Macintosh, always bigger, always faster. One of the very first diehard Apple fans. I always said I wish I had back all the money I spent on Apple because every step of the way, everything that they came up with that was new, I went out and bought because I had to be the first with the best, the first color, the first everything, the first modem. Uh, waited for years for the Mac to get color. And then, of course, I hooked Robert's sister into it. She was in the movie industry, and she also said, what would I want that for, Mom? And I said, well, you're always worried about continuity. And you have a hairstyle going on now with somebody sitting in a car with their hair blowing. And then six months later, you got to pick them up and it's the same day. And that's what you do, Candy. You can use this. You can line it all up. Next thing I knew, she was making charts and sitting in her production area on the set. And uh, the other actors and people walking around saying, what are you doing with a computer? You're a hairdresser. Okay, so your mom is 95 now, right. and she bought the first Mac, probably the 128K or an Apple. Right. Was it an Apple II? It's a, no, it was a very, the very first Mac, Mac 128. Oh, the Mac, like the little black and white one with the handle. That's right. Okay, so back in 84. So she would be roughly then 55. That's right. So she's a, she was as old as you are, which is uh, quite old. It's crazy when you think about it because... I mean, her first computer at my age now seems absolutely ridiculous to me. Now, the fun part is that is when her tech career took off. <laughs> Hang on. So your your mom's tech career, what did she what did she do? Was she writing assembly on a Vax? 
was it was he Mr. Punch Cards? I mean, were people using Macs for programming in 84? No, no, it wasn't programming. Um, she became convinced that the fun that she was having at home doing word processing and Mac paint and all these other things, that it would really resonate with the students in her classroom. My fellow English teachers thought I'd gone off my rocker, but uh, Apple came around with the possibility of writing grants in the high school and maybe supplying the English teachers with computers for the classroom. I thought, ah, here we go, now here we go. And so we got together, it was many, many hours of writing that grant. And so we requested five Macintoshes, five printers, and then I said, I hate labs. I can't imagine dragging our students out to labs. Our teachers are gonna fight it, talk about time in their classroom and all that. So what I want is for the five to be all together in one room on rolling carts that can be taken to the classrooms and the teachers given in services about how to use them because they're not gonna know how to use them. And lo and behold, I could not believe it. We were given the grant. I cannot tell you the excitement. Look at all I can do with this. And so I sat down, typed in a paragraph or so, printed it out, clickety-clack, you know. I was just so proud of myself, I couldn't believe it. Well, as I was getting used to all that, various ones of the English teachers would stick their head in the door and smile and raise their eyebrows and stuff. I had the rather mistaken notion that the rest of them all had computers lurking at home of the normal kind, and that they all secretly knew all about computers and I didn't. And so they let me believe that. <laughs> they they uh, kind of gave the idea that they weren't interested in my Mac because they had the quote, real computers at home. They thought the Mac was a toy. Why had I written a grant? for the Mac when the others were, quote, real computers. Okay, so I assume by like real computers, she's saying like business machines, like CPM or Windows machines, but Windows was 85. So PC-DOS, MS-DOS, on IBM, right? No one ever got fired for picking IBM. Yeah, you have to remember computers back then were very, very um, Spartan, I guess is the word, or sparse, it was command line, right? Imagine yeah. working in a command line constantly and you're trying to write, you're trying to do word processing. It's just, it was, it, was, uh, it was difficult, right? These Macs were insanely visual. Now, we did also have a bunch of PCs in the high school computer lab. Hang on, we? This is you hearing the story from your mom or were you at your mom's school? No, I, yeah, I, I guess your I Your mom was a teacher at the school you went to? Yeah, I was I was actually in my mom's. Did you call English her class. mom or you call her Mrs. Carr? Like I called her mom once, and it was a really funny. I uh, in fact, funny story on this one. I was sitting in her in her class, and she was asking all these vocabulary questions, and I managed to get one wrong because I confused the word, and I busted out with, and the whole class sat in stunned silence because it's my mom, right? It's my mom. I just had that familiarity, and my mom is great. She goes, "Well, I'll put it up to the class. Should I send him to the principal's office or should I ground him?" Oh, put him whole, whole class. Oh, got grounded. Laughing. Yeah. So, 
but yeah, anyway, I remember that time well. Um, I remember that rolling computer lab cruising around, those Macs on it. And when they rolled in the door, the students were stoked. So the ease of correction was so quick and they could immediately see the results and the smiles that came on their faces, the delight, the real delight at all of a sudden my work looks respectable and the teacher doesn't kind of look at me like, look that weird handwriting and I can't read this, please write larger and copy that over because it looks wretched. None of that was happening. The pride they took in it. One teacher who taught um, neurodiverse students, and diversity is a good word there because uh, they were all different abilities, some of them severely disabled and others not so much. But anyway, she had roughly 25 students that were a real challenge to her. And she brought her students up to me well into my program to try out the computers and to see these children immediately drop into that kind of pride and joy, amazement at what they were able to do. Really was one of the best memories I have of that whole era. I hadn't used a word processor until my mom brought home that first Mac back in 1984. My God, that's so long ago. Program was called MacWrite and I thought it was interesting, but it was only when my mom bought one of those first laser printers, the HP LaserJet. Did you guys ever have one of those? Oh, man. Those, I can hear the thing warming up. Yeah. Do you remember printing out uh, a homework assignment or something you've written? Do you remember? See, I, I mean, again, you, you, you're talking about having a Mac and having a LaserJet, and I don't know what fancy school you went to. <laughs> we had an Apple II, and we had paper with uh, you know spools on the side that was green and white. Uh, uh, you know, like we had, was it called? That, uh, Dot matrix? You would buy it in a stack and it was every page was attached and you had to unzip it. So this is interesting. I just sort of assumed that printers worked with every computer. Am I wrong about that? Oh my goodness. Rob, let me tell you, young man, <laughs> back in the day, you would have to write the printer driver yourself. So what they would do is they would give you a list of uh, codes that would say A is this and B is that and boldface is this. And you'd have to go into your you know program. It might be called WordPerfect or Word but mine was called Paperclip. And you'd say, all right, I have an Epson FX80 and the bold control code is this and the italics control code is this and the unbold control code is this, right? Without, see, now you're making me feel uh, <laughs> neurospicy. <laughs> this is where my wife is like, I think you're on some kind of spectrum because now you're off talking about printer control codes, right? And this is a compelling use case for a Mac in the school system, right? Yeah. Uh, because it gets people excited, and then they go off talking about carriage returns and line feeds, you know? <laughs> but it is and a mouse. A mouse? There was a mouse? I, it's amazing. Let me talk to you about how the mouse works. Yeah, no, it, it is a very distinct memory of printing up. I could still see the font. I want to say it was Chicago, the name of the font. That blocky, weird font. Oh, my goodness. But to hold that in my hand, man, that felt like an achievement. And, uh, yeah, I, these kids apparently felt like that, too. So I'm going to push the story a little bit ahead here. My mom's retired now, but is constantly being asked to help the school district by training new teachers on how to use computers in the classroom. Uh, she receives the title of mentor teacher, which is a really big deal, and even does a stint with LA County School District where she introduces them to PowerPoint, of all things. As a mentor teacher, uh, anything I asked for, I got. 
And so I said, uh, you know, there are programs out that make slides, real slides. And I said, you know, you have these things with projectors you put on the wall, you demonstrations and everything, but wait till you see them projected in color in a 30 millimeter slide. And he said, you, you can't make those. I said, I can make those with this program. It's called PowerPoint. And he said, all right, okay, how much does it cost? And I told him, whoo. <laughs> but next thing you know, he buys it for me. And so the next thing, the director was coming over to my dining room, and we were making slides for him to show to the uh, school district. Well, people were pretty blown away. You did that? You're not an artist. I said, no, I'm not an artist, but I did that with PowerPoint. And so I just proceeded to buy what I could, but then now I'm getting the district to buy stuff for me besides. So when you go to a presentation today and someone's using PowerPoint, they're likely projecting something. They're projecting the screen of their computer. But in the late 1980s and early 90s, we would use a overhead projector mm -hmm. and, and shine through a piece of cellophane and draw on it, like basically like a see-through dry erase marker system. So overhead projectors are great. Then, of course, you'd have a mimeograph and you'd all get a copy of your uh, <laughs> photocopied thing, which there was no photocopy machine. There was a mimeograph. This is a very different time. And if you wanted to share your slides, you have to send it to a special printer, right? A slide deck comes from the old school slide projector, the thing with the wheel that had the photograph slide in and out as it would go around in a wheel. This is a very different time. And she's doing this manually. Yep. She did it for years, well into her mid-60s. She's been retired now for a long time, and it started with her creating technical presentations for the school district administrators. Um, it eventually led to contract gigs working for these Fortune 500 medical companies. And as my mom puts it, this was part four of her life, her fourth reboot. First came childhood, kids and family, then her career uh, that she retired from, and now her life as a techie, which is hysterical. I do love to learn stuff. Um, my big theory is that to keep your brain young, uh, and so I just learned something constantly. Instead of retiring and fading away, what the whole thing did for me was just give me a new boost in my life and make me realize that it's never over till it's over. And if you keep learning new things and moving on, the excitement and the fun of it all just kind of tells you that you just constantly rediscover and remake yourself. But anyway, about age 65 then, my now new husband came by one day and said, I think it's about time that, you know, we travel and do a little something else. Uh, maybe you can leave this for a bit. And so I left that, but I never left the computer world. I still continued and am continuing to this day at age 94 and a half. I still buy everything that Apple is spinning out. My parents divorced in 1980, and for 15 years, my mom devoted herself to her career, which is the story you've been listening to, until she met the Colonel, as we called him, Colonel Don Reese, World War II veteran, wonderful man. They married in 1995 and traveled the world until he sadly passed away from Alzheimer's in 2004. And once again, my mom lived alone. Still in the house that I grew up in, until 2008, when she decided to move into an assisted living place in Eugene, Oregon, to be near my oldest brother. 
She was recovering from hip replacement surgery, was about to turn 80, and life was becoming a little more difficult. She still had her computers. You might think I'm wrapping this story up and this is where it's going to end, but nope, she was about to meet a new friend, Tech Sergeant Del Long. I was the youngest person there, so I, I felt pretty frisky. I'd spend every morning fixing my face and hair and curling my eyelashes and everything because I wanted to look better than everybody. And uh, I just, I guess I must have succeeded pretty well because this very nice gentleman whose wife had passed away, unfortunately, started kind of paying attention. And so we had this one project where we were arranging the yearly tips that were allowed for the help. And they had a big formula they used based on the number of hours the employee had worked for them and their hourly wage. It was quite a mathematical challenge. And I thought, well, I always like a challenge. And I have a copy of Excel. I think I'll figure out how to put that whole blasted thing into Excel. It took me quite a while. But doggone it, I, did, I made a spreadsheet. And we had like maybe 80 employees. Some of them had a total of 10 hours for the year. And others had full-time jobs for the year. So the deal was they, the people living there were supposed to in the dining room, go up to the fireplace and put their contribution into a hat every afternoon. They were supposed to give enough money so these people would have their yearly tip. Well, most of them would forget, of course, to bring money to the dining room. So I made a gorgeous Christmas flyer, all in color and printed it out. And Dell took them around, slipped them under the door of every person. And lo and behold, of course, they brought money down and put it in the hat. We raised $7,000 <laughs> for, the, for the help. $7,000 for the staff because of an Excel spreadsheet, some colorful flyers. My mom lived there for just over two years and enjoyed her time, for the most part. Her friendship with Dell grew, and it gave her an idea. She had sold the house she had lived in since 1968. That's the one I grew up in. So she had some savings, maybe enough to buy another house and move out of that home that she was in. All she needed was a friend to join her. So I said, Dell, let's go around and look at houses and see what's pretty in Eugene. He said, okay. So one day we went roaming around and uh, I did have a real estate agent, amazingly, come with us. And so she took us to like three or four very dismal looking dark houses. And I thought, I don't think I'll ever buy a house in this city. But then at the end of the afternoon, the very last house she took us to, lo and behold, here's this magnificent kitchen. Windows with sunlight bursting in. Great big gorgeous rooms. And I said, uh, I'm buying this house, Dell. And he looked at me like he was going to fall over. I'm buying this house. Do you want to move in with me? I bust out of that 
joint. I was him. <laughs> and he came along with me. We were here 12 years. Yeah, I still am here. Uh, he unfortunately passed away in January. But we had another existence, another life. Born and raised in Montana, Del Long lied about his age so he could join the U.S. Marines at age 16. 16! Fight in World War II. After his discharge, he began his teaching career, and in his 50s, he started building British race cars, Corvairs, and racing them on the weekends in the Pacific Northwest. First time I met Del, we went out to pizza, and we were about to drive to our favorite pizza place, La Perla, in Eugene, Oregon, and I offered to drive, of course, and he said, not a chance, son. <laughs> You're sitting back there. Uh, we were in a convertible, a top-down, beautiful, warm summer night, and let's just say we were driving at some excessive speeds <laughs> and i was freaking out and that's when i learned that dell used to race cars mom laughing the entire way i had never seen her happier how many chapters did i tell you i have ever the long teaching career then the in-servicing career and the marriage to dawn and then the marriage to dell i'm still doing computers that I'm doing a lot of artwork now. I joked with Robert when he came in today that uh, I had heard one counselor speak who felt that at last, now this was the end, and if he hadn't accomplished it all, now it's over, so you better hurry up before you get to 93. Well, I'm 94 and a half, Well, it's sure not over, aren't <laughs> you? I mean, why should anybody ever decide it's over? I, I, I have more plans. It's not over till it's over, right, Robert? <laughs> it's not over till it's over, right? When is your next reboot? You don't have to suffer if you're unsatisfied. You just have to make a choice and jump. Life is long. It's full of interesting twists and turns, and, but you never know how much your life is going to change in just a year's time. Maybe you're going to be racing down a highway with someone you haven't met. Life is indeed very long. During this holiday season, Take some time to reflect on the chapters of your life. How do they differ from one another? There are more to come, and you never know what could happen in this long, amazing life. Thanks, Mom, for talking to me today. We will be back again soon.